imagine for us to to approach the pole the last degree in complete darkness took us 11 days for 11 days we tried to go to the pole and we drifted back we tried to go to the pole and we drifted back imagine doing that for 11 days and each morning you wake up exactly where you started from the day before how mentally must that play a role and we drifted back imagine doing that for 11 days and each morning you wake up exactly where you started from the day before how mentally must that play a role on on your mind knowing that you're eating the food and you on top of the world where nobody can rescue you that is unknown that is fear that is confinement don't tell me staying at home is confinement welcome to the roam from home podcast broadcasting from boulder colorado this is the podcast where we have illuminating conversations with the most prominent experts and icons in adventure all from the rome universe hosted by myself chris gerard from rome and national geographic photographer storyteller athlete and rome founding member Corey richards thanks a lot for tuning in enjoy the show most people uh that pay attention to rome might very well know Mike Horn. Um, but just to give a little bit of a background, you know, Mike, for the better part of the last three decades, has been one of the most prolific explorers on the planet. Uh, his expeditions include circumnavigating the globe uh, around the equator, solo, unsupported, um, unmotorized, it includes uh, going from the source of the Amazon to the sea, uh, swimming the Amazon, essentially, solo, unsupported, circumnavigating the Arctic Circle, solo, unsupported, unmotorized, going across Antarctica, solo, unsupported, unmotorized, um, and then just most recently going over the North Pole, which is his second time doing that with Borge Osland. Uh, and there's many others as well, uh, many uh, 8,000 meter peaks, uh, several attempts on K2, a four-year expedition called the Young Explorers Expedition with his boat, the 4x4 of the sea known as Pangaea. Uh, the, it, there's too many things even to get into, but just to give the audience an idea, uh, this is a guy who, in terms of understanding isolation, has... Uh, experienced it more than anyone I know um, in in his adventures and being an explorer. And uh, it's just a great pleasure to have him here on Rome from Home, uh, the podcast where we talk to some of the most inspiring and well-known adventurers about how they're uh, moving through and navigating the waters that is uh, today, which is a very unprecedented time in history. Um, and our co-host is Mr. Corey Richards, National Geographic photographer, and athlete uh, who also is no stranger to isolation and exploration uh, with uh, lots of time way up high in, uh, in the mountains and other spots as well. So really excited to have this conversation with Mike. Mike and I go back now. I was thinking about this, Mike. Uh, it's just about a decade that when we, we first met uh, in Shanghai, where Mike was kind enough to uh, allow me on board Pangaea and we sailed from Shanghai. Never allowed you. You you wanted to come along. So I, <laughs> I know. Well, time. I sure did. Time. You stay on the site, so you deserve coming on Pangaea. 
you, uh, I, I, I'm fond of this little story about my first interaction with Mike. Um, I, had, I was working as a, as a producer and business manager for our friend Chase Jarvis, and we had this opportunity to go meet this guy, Mike Horn, uh, and get on his amazing boat. And I was working with, with Kathy Horn, Mike's wife, on setting it all up, and I uh, hadn't even really spoken to Mike. And we, we land in Shanghai, and uh, we were there by, through, a, through the uh, um, Panerai, one of uh, Mike's sponsors uh, was bringing us on board. And Panerai is an amazing luxury watch company. And we were put up in this hotel, the Ritz-Carlton, uh, when we got into Shanghai. And so I'm on the phone with Mike and we're going to meet him the next morning. And uh, we're, we're having this conversation about meeting to get on the boat. And Mike is the captain and he's, he's very point blank. He doesn't know who we are. We're just a couple of soft journalists from someplace that Panerai brought in. And he says, well, where are you staying? And uh, as the words came out of my mouth, I knew it was the wrong thing to say. I said, we're, we're at the Ritz Carlton. And Mike says, oh, at the Ritz Carlton. Well, you won't be getting breakfast in bed on Pangaea. And if you're not here at seven o'clock, we will leave. I do not give a shit. <laughs> and that was the very first time we had a conversation. We were there at 7 a.m. And he was incredibly gracious when we actually were on board. It was an amazing experience. We sailed down to Hong Kong and then across the Strait of Taiwan uh, to Kaohsiung. Um, yeah. And uh, that was our first experience together. We've had many adventures since then. And I'm just so excited to have you on. You're one of the, the folks that many people have requested to hear from at this time uh, to see what you're doing, what you're up to. And uh, with that, we'll, we'll dive in. And, and we, we already have a little bit. But yeah, you know, let's, let's talk about uncertainty. Let's talk about the fact that we're living in a time of uncertainty right now that maybe people are, are uh, you know, a little bit uncertain on how to deal with that. And, you know, your experiences uh, and both of your experiences, Corey and Mike, that's a big part of adventure. It's a, it is the definition of adventure. If it's certain, it's, it's not an adventure. Maybe let's talk about that a little bit and, and go from there. I also, I just want to say, if anybody ever has the opportunity to meet Mike, meet him because he's great. Just be wary about shaking his hand because he might break your hand. Like that's the one thing I remember about meeting Mike for the first time was it was, you know, it was this, it was this handshake where I actually walked away and winced, but you can't show, don't show weakness to Mike. Just, right. just, just be careful. Just, just go in there carefully. Yeah. You know, it's, um, at, at the end of the day, um, it's become a, a Corey, it's become a, a signature. Right. So, um, you know, people just want to shake my hand to have their hand crushed a little bit. And right. If I don't do it, they're all disappointed. And it's, um, you know, I lost my legacy. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> I've, I've been training my hand just to, just to come back in and just, uh, actually, it reminds me of a guy named Tomas Kumar. They would shake hands, you know, just like the same. It was so strong. So, yeah. Yeah. so what's traveling like right now? I think just a lot of people are really, because most of us are, are just, most people are just locked up and some people have to like you, some people have to travel. So what's that like? I mean, it's got to be kind of odd at this moment. No, I, I, I think um, you've got to be respectful towards uh, 
the older people. Um, you've got to be respectful. Uh, if you know that uh, you are uh, carrying the virus uh, to be able to stay at home. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been tested and, and uh, I've been cleared. And the moment you're cleared uh, means that you can, you can uh, travel. Today, the older people are not traveling anymore. Uh, so that makes, uh, makes it a little bit easier uh, not to infect other people. And at the same time, um, the media has, has created a lot of fear. Uh, and people uh, feel that um, it's good for their health and, and good for the health of others uh, to, to stay at home. Um, but that is very re relevant to, uh, to big cities. Mm -hmm. uh, where we uh, live in, in the mountains, uh, there's about 100 people that live in our village and they never leave the valley. So we um, really uh, already isolated in the mountains simply by our location where we live. Yeah. And uh, people, people in my village, uh, we, we have not really uh, changed much in the way uh, that that we live. Um, what has changed is there's less and less tourists uh, coming into this valley and uh, the Swiss government uh, decided to close all the ski resorts because uh, a lot of the Italians and, and French and, 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 and uh, Spaniards uh, do spend their, their skiing holidays in Switzerland. Um, so you know, if you if you stop the the, the influx, uh, then you can control the virus. So, um, by staying at home, um, you know, is definitely the um, um, the right thing to do. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we live in, in in a space that allows us to be able to still go out outside um, because. There's nobody else outside. Yeah, and um, that 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 isolates you uh, outside as well. I go running, I go skiing uh, earlier than other people uh, would wake up, uh, so I would not uh, um, influence their lives at all. So for those who are afraid, I think it's a good thing uh, that they really stay at home, respect. Uh, others by washing your hands and, and, and basically staying away from older people. Uh, but don't confine your mind. You can, you can put your, your body um, uh, in, in a confined space at home, but your mind must never be confined. And that's what I love about uh, traveling now. We travel through our mind and this is the perfect moment to create projects, to dream big, to plan them and basically when it opens up again, all you have to do is to go out there and do it, do them. And yeah. I've never had as much time now uh, than, than uh, in the last 25 years as a professional explorer. And I'm more busy today uh, with commitments than ever before. Meaning that some people confine their minds and their body at home and they stop being creative. Mm -hmm. That gives us space today to enter 
into a space that is vacant. There's a lot of space out there. And we should not fight the virus because you can't fight a virus that is more powerful than you. And that idea of fighting it uh, has made people afraid. I -hmm. think we have to take the appropriate steps to deal with the virus. As soon as you fight somebody, you can win or you can lose. And that is the wrong mindset to have on this. So we said we declared war and we're going to fight this thing together. I, I just believe that we mustn't be so aggressive towards um, creating an idea, an image in our head that is not really the reality. So for me, we have to be respectful. We've got to stay at home. But we mustn't find the, uh, fight this virus in our mind. We've got to leave our mind free. For a lot of the American audience, they don't, you know, they might not know as much about you. One of the things that I know is that you actually spent, um, you spent two years in, in, in war in that, or in the military. And that's an experience that many Americans don't have. I'm just curious if there's any corollary, because you just drew some really amazing lines between uh, the mental shift that takes place as soon as you're in a battle, um, yeah. how that, that fosters fear. Is there, is there something that you've learned from those years, those unfortunate years where you were actually doing that, um, that you can translate and offer to people now? Does that question make sense? You know, Corey, uh, I think it does make sense. Um, because when you 18 years old and you get sent, uh, into Africa to fight a war um, in the bush, um, you have to deal with fear. Mm -hmm. Today, we do not know how to deal with fear. Mm -hmm. So the media allows um, our minds to create a product that we call fear. And the moment that we've created this product, um, we kind of hide ourselves. We try and move away from the possibility of maybe dying. Mm -hmm. Now, at a very young age, I was exposed to fear. And I understood that fear has to become my home because I'm fighting a war. Mm -hmm. Fear will be all over. It will be surrounding me. And if I do not know how to live with fear, fear will eventually kill me. Like fear will kill a lot of people that's so afraid of this COVID-19 virus that they wouldn't know that it's actually fear that will have a bigger consequence on their life than the virus itself. Mm -hmm. Now, without being disrespectful, I follow what the government say. I believe in self-quarantining. I believe in uh, um, uh, by isolating yourself from others. I believe on washing your hands. Mm -hmm. But we mustn't let fear dominate our life. The moment that fear dominates your life, you become a spectator to your own life. And that is what the war has taught me. The war has taught me that I am not there to fight a war. I'm there to survive a war. Mm -hmm. And the moment that you 
change your attitude by saying, I'm not fighting a war to kill the virus, or I'm not fighting the war to kill the enemy, but I'm fighting the war to survive the war, to become a better person at the end of the day. That's two mentalities completely different. And mm -hmm. that, that I was exposed to from a, a very young age. And being a professional explorer like you are for 25 years has taught me that fear becomes exciting. Fear allows me to go into the unknown. Fear allows me to step out of my comfort zone. And mm -hmm. when you are threatened in your comfort zone, where the hell are you going to go to? Mm -hmm. You're caught at home. Yeah. And that's what this virus has done. So I can be anywhere in the world in the most dangerous situations and I can feel comfortable and safe because I know how to deal with fear. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, it sounds to me like um, it's two sides of fear, right? I mean, it's not that you're disregarding fear, it's that you're harnessing it or you're observing it for what, for its, for its potential energy versus being consumed by the energy that it creates. Yeah. And I, you, you understand it as well as I do. If there's, there's no fear, it's not worth doing. Right. You go right. into it, not, not try to avoid it or say that it no. doesn't exist, but you, you live with it and go into it. But, but exactly I mean, that, Chris, whatever we do in life, there will be an element of fear involved in it. Anything worth doing will have fear. Anything worth doing will be difficult. Everything worth doing most probably haven't been done before or hasn't been done before. So, if I know how to deal with fear and I would like to do something that has never been done before and I listen to everybody telling me it's impossible and I believe everybody else, then I'll never be able to do it. So that is where you become the master of your own mind. That is when you become the, the one that overcomes and not conquer fear, but, but, but deal with the fear in a way that it energizes you, that it makes you pay attention, that fear is, is, is an insurance policy for your life. The moment I stop having fear is the moment that I'll stop doing what I'm doing because then I have no respect. Mm. Hmm. So in that regard, fear is respect. I mean, I guess the question for a lot of people is how to take, um, because, because media, as you point out, thrives on fear. It actually, it, 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 its engine is fear. Its fuel is fear. So the more fear it can create, the better it does. And I, and I wonder how people can tra translate that into energy versus into panic. Um, you know, the, the way that you control people today is um, by, are you guys there? Yeah, we're there. My, my, my phone just went off. The, the way that you control people today is you control people by making them afraid. The moment that you have created fear, that's when people are willing to listen. 
-hmm. But at the end of the day, when you overthink, overthink things, then it creates doubt. Now, fear is one thing. Doubt with fear paralyzes people because mm -hmm. they do not know what is going to happen next. And that is when you go into the unknown. So when I speak about your comfort zone, your comfort zone is a place that you live in, that you, you socialize in, that you work in. And the moment that that surrounding, that surrounding of your comfort zone changes, that, and you go into the unknown, that is when you create fear. And then if you're not sure what to do, you create doubt. And doubt with fear becomes your biggest enemy in life. That kills people. Mm -hmm. So it's so it's so it's uh, it's balancing the the fear and the doubt. It's having reasonable doubt, rational doubt, but also it seems to me that that speaks to another one of your strengths, which is planning. Uh, and just knowing what what the trajectory is, and saying, okay, we know we know that these are the unknowns. We know that these are the knowns. We know that this is the big question mark in the middle. And based on what we do know, we're going to try to navigate what we don't know most carefully, but not let that be paralyzing. Corey, a hundred percent. That's that's one hundred percent described perfectly. I only know five to ten percent. Of, of everything that I try and control before I leave on an expedition. Mm -hmm. The rest, the 80% or the 90%, the rest that I don't know, I will find along the way. Mm -hmm. And that is the way to deal with what is happening today. That's the way to deal with any adventure. If you want to know a hundred percent before you leave on an expedition or if you want to know and assure 100% safety you will stay at home because 100% of safety and control is impossible to have right 10 percent is enough to go once you know <laughs> that 10 percent then the rest the 90 percent you'll find along the way yeah. I love that. There's a lot of uh, uncertainty right now. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that the world is struggling with so much is all of this uncertainty and how to navigate that. And to, 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 to Chris's question about uncertainty, I think there's, there's a lot of that right now. Living in uncertainty is, is really... Um, I think it's challenging for people, but I also I'm curious to get to that so much of what you've done has been alone. It's been solo, um, which, which is something that I think people are experiencing right now in a way that they never have before. Why, why have so many of your adventures and your explorations been alone? What is it about that, that that's so appealing and what have you learned from it? You know, uh, Corey, I, th I think that um, the moment that you engage uh, into your ideas, um, it's very difficult to, to find um, like-minded people uh, mm -hmm. that, that are willing to, to take as much risks um, for an idea 
that somebody else uh, might have had. And uh, that's why it's very difficult to, to, to find, um, you know, the, as an example, the first expedition when, when I swam that 5,000 miles down the Amazon River, um, you know, I was in the South African Special <clears throat> Forces. Uh, I joined the Brazilian Special Forces in Manaus. Uh, and the training that I had prior uh, to, to leaving um, was, was specialized training. Mm -hmm. And then um, going into the Amazon jungle by myself, uh, learning how to survive, uh, you know, hunting, uh, staying in the jungle alone for uh, a period of one and a half months. Uh, I knew that if I had a chance uh, to, cross, uh, to cross the Amazon jungle, uh, I can do it alone. And that is where I believe the preparation uh, becomes so important. When you do have, <clears throat> uh, sorry, in the jungle, uh, two, um, uh, two explorers uh, crossing the jungle, <clears throat> you have as, as well um, a better chance of being bitten by snakes. You've got um, uh, the exposure of two people uh, and the speed that you can travel at uh, becomes much slower. Mm -hmm. The food that you have to find uh, becomes less mm -hmm. and more complicated. So all these, um, all these factors made me decide uh, to do most of the jungle expeditions uh, alone because mm -hmm. I knew I could feed myself. Uh, the moment that, that you go with somebody else, you don't pay as much attention because you believe they're looking for you. Uh, and they they finding the snake that you're supposed to see, mm -hmm. uh, and that those moments um, of of relaxation when you in a group or uh, with a fellow explorer um, makes me vulnerable, makes me weak, and like I prefer, um, you know, climbing mountains with. Uh, with Fred Drew, we're always just two climbers um, because we're there to support each other uh, um, through the climb. And the climb would last 48 hours or, or, or maximum 70 hours from base camp, base camp up, up and down. Um, that is a complete different philosophy than spending six months um, in the jungle or, mm -hmm. <clears throat> sorry, or two years um, circumnavigating the world uh, around the Arctic Circle. So the moment that um, you ask your mates to come for a two-year expedition, it becomes very, very difficult to find people that's willing to say yes. And, so, and, and also people that you want to spend two years with. That's the other uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the advantage, the advantage of having somebody uh, with you is that you can always eat them. Um, right. <laughs> naturally, naturally, which is an upside. So, <laughs> only joking, only joking. <laughs> uh, hey, I mean, times are crazy right now. You never know. Uh, I, I, it's, so, again, it, it comes back to that idea of, uh, 
you are, what I think what you're saying is that, um, I mean, solo has its advantages at times and in uncertainty, it's just arming yourself with the most amount of knowledge you can, you can amass um, in order to keep yourself safe. And, and sometimes in, in, in learning about these environments that you're going to be going through, you start to understand that actually it's safer as one versus two. Yeah, that, you know, that's why in, 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 in a way I could cross Antarctica uh, solo, um, but the North Pole that, that we just crossed with Borgi Ausland, uh, both Borgi and myself knew that an expedition uh, like the crossing of the North Pole uh, during the darkness uh, um, and, and the winter um, would, would be impossible um, alone. Simply Why? Because, Why is that? Simply because of the, the fact that um, there's a lot of open water today. There's very thin ice at the period that we wanted to go. So if we try to go at the end of winter, uh, when the ice um, is more stable and, and where uh, the winter has given the ice time uh, to get thicker, um, that's most probably when somebody can try and, 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 and cross the polar ocean solo. But the fact that you have to make your own track, the fact that you have to pull a sled that's nearly 200 kgs behind you and each step you make is in fresh or compact snow, um, you just don't have the physical power uh, to do that for 2,000 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And Borgia and myself, even on, on the crossing of the North Pole, could, could make a track for, for 15 minutes. And then it's, uh, we would change. He would be in the front for 15 minutes and be so exhausted that he couldn't make one step further. Then I will take 15 minutes. And through a period of 100 days, uh, that's, uh, that's three months, um, we could, we could um, make a track for 15 minutes. If you're alone, it, it would be impossible uh, to keep on making a track because the moment that you're not in front and that you're at the back, that is the moment that you can recover and you can rest. Mm -hmm. So the same thing by crossing leads. We can't cross certain leads with the sled behind us. So we have to cross the lead with a long line that, that's about 80 meters long. If the lead is, uh, uh, is, is more than um, uh, 80 meters, that is when you need somebody on the other side to start pushing the sleds into the water so mm -hmm. you can gain the distance to get on solid ice before you actually pull the whole load across the very thin ice or open lead, mm -hmm. open lead. So these are techniques that makes a, 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 um, a winter expedition uh, across the North Pole very, very difficult to do alone. I'm not saying it's impossible, but what I'm saying is that um, I don't think I could have done it solo. And, you know, just speaking to Borgi, the world, to me, the world's greatest polar, polar explorer. Um, you know, he, he just said, well, um, this I consider as impossible alone.
When when Borges says that, you listen, right? Yeah, when when he, he he's not a man of many words. Yeah. So when Borges actually tells you that um, you know it's one of the most difficult polar expedition uh, expedition that he has done, uh, then you you listen because he would say this is difficult, and then you know uh, it's difficult, and he wouldn't say anything else. One of you almost died on it. Was it was it Borges or you that went in this last one? Yeah, the last day before the, um, we, we were running out of food and, and trying to get to the boat that uh, was there to pick us up at, at 82 degrees north. Mm -hmm. um, that's when the ice becomes uh, very fragile. That's when uh, the thickness of the ice, um, you know, differs very quickly because that is where the, the waves and the open ocean of the Northern Atlantic uh, breaks up the ice and mm -hmm. the ice drifts off into the Northern Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. So the boat that came and picked us up could get into a lead and that lead stopped at about 82, 82 degrees, 13 minutes north. Mm -hmm. So when we approach the boat, that is obviously in that danger zone of very thin ice mm -hmm. and about 20 kilometers away from the boat, about 12, 14 miles from the, the boat, um, uh, Borgi was busy filming and I was moving slowly forward to try and approach a lead, the last lead to cross before we could get to the vessel. Mm -hmm. And when you have open water and you have wind, the wind blows the snow and you've got snow drifting onto the water huh. so you, you cannot see there's no ice on top of the water it's only snow that's blown that's drifted onto the onto the water and you cannot see the difference in between snow on top of a layer of ice and snow on top of open water huh impossible to see and we did this in complete darkness, 24 hour darkness. So you cannot see further than what your headlamp sh uh, uh, shows you or lights mm -hmm. up in front of you. And I moved forward knowing, knowing that there was a lead in front of me and didn't pay attention to the details of, um, that snow on top of the water, I was looking a little bit further. And at that specific moment, when I stepped off the little bit of solid ice onto the snow that was floating on the water, the snow gave away and I fell into the water. Mm -hmm. um, Borgi dropped the camera and, and, and skied to me as fast as he could, but he was going to be trapped in the, in the same trap that, I went in. So mm -hmm. when I fall into the water, he's going to fall into the water. So that's a moment that he cannot do much for you. That's mm -hmm. a moment that you have to be able to find a solution by yourself. The moment you go into the water is the moment that it's nice and warm because yeah. it's minus 38 outside yeah. the water. And in the water, it's only minus two degrees Celsius. Right. So there's 36 degrees difference and 
you fall into the water and wow, this is great. This is nice and warm. But the moment you step out of that water, you die. Yeah. In the water, you can survive for about eight to 12 minutes, I think. Mm -hmm. And then you will die of hypothermia. So mm. you've got eight minutes to try and get a way to get out of the water. Because Mike, you're, no, you're wearing your just your normal uh, just, outerwear now. You're not in a dry suit or anything like that. You just went in in your in your normal outerwear. Yeah, with with the skis on, with my boots on, with my um, you know my outerwear, uh, with all my underwear, with my mittens, um, the sled attached to me, like normal, you know, uh, like we were skiing just normally across on solid ice and the moment that that it actually gave away that was when both me and Borgi knew that wow this um you don't usually survive falling into the water yeah because the the snow becomes like a concrete like a cement because the moment that you fall into the water, the snow sucks up all that water and becomes heavy. Mm -hmm. One one of my skis were, I managed to fall backwards and one of my skis were on top of the snow and the other ski was went through the snow into the open water below the snow with wet snow like a slush surrounding me. The moment I tried to pull my ski that went through the snow up i knew that it was impossible to get my leg back above that slush mm -hmm. the moment i tried to pull my leg up my body went into the water it's not the leg that goes up it's actually the body that goes down into the water and then by lying back completely i moved the ski backwards by pushing on the ski that was on top of the slush and on top of the snow that didn't go through uh, the, the, the snow. And kicking the tip up, the tip came up through the snow and I rolled on my back and I got out on solid ice. And that took about three and a half minutes. At that wow. moment, Borgi unclipped my sled and he pushed the sled a little bit further away from the open leaves that now was moving. It's, the ice moves constantly. So the lead was opening up. We, were, we went back on solid ice and he opened my sled and we started pitching the tent. You've got about, I reckon, about three minutes to pitch your tent. I rolled on the snow to have the snow suck up the moisture on my clothing because mm -hmm. you're completely wet. And the moment that you roll on the snow, you roll and you roll and you roll, the snow sticks to the moist clothing and freezes mm -hmm. and kind of cocoons up around you. Mm -hmm. But now you've got to get the clothes off and you're completely covered in ice. Mm -hmm. So Borgi was pitching the tent. I gave him a hand and then I tried to get my boots off because now my feet are slowly but surely freezing. 
I'm trying to get the clothing off, but all the zippers are frozen. And uh, Borgi pitches the tent, he takes his knife, he cuts off the harness. I get out of the harness, he lights the stoves. We get into the tent with the snow, uh, with, the, with the stove that we use to melt the ice so that we have water to drink. Mm -hmm. I defrost the zippers. I open the zipper, I rip the zipper open. I get all the clothing off and there I'm star naked at minus 40 degrees Celsius in, in the tent. And that's when you can start heating up your body again. Mm -hmm. Be but because it's salt water, it's seawater that you've fallen into, you've got to be able to get rid of the salt on your body because the salt attracts humidity. Mm -hmm. And if you think of, 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 of uh, uh, a salt and a pepper, um, what they call it ever, if you have it at the ocean, the right. salt always kind of um, becomes moist. Yeah. And you can't get it out of the, pep, uh, the salt shaker. Right. So that's the same that happens with your body. You've got salt crystals forming on your body. And as soon as you, there's a little bit of humidity and that salt goes into your clothing, your clothing starts being humid. And that is when your body can't heat the clothing anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it very difficult to survive on the polar ocean. Where Antarctica is easy, it's dry. There's, it's the, the ice is, is clean, fresh water if you melt it. But yeah. on the Arctic Ocean, the ice is salt water. Mm -hmm. So even finding water to drink on the Arctic Ocean becomes very difficult. And uh, so I took the water out of my thermos. Um, every day we, we have two liters of water uh, in thermoses that we drag along with us so we can have some water to drink. And I took the water out of my thermos and with some of the toilet paper that I had left, I started cleansing my body from the salt with the water that I was supposed to drink during the day. And the moment that I got all the salt out, now you've got to get the salt out of your backside, in between your balls, underneath your arms, mm -hmm. out of your ear, everywhere it's, it's full of salt. You've got to rinse your hair and mm -hmm. everything. The moment that, that I removed all the salt, I then put the extra layers of underwear uh, on me and then uh, I had a spare uh, down vest and uh, 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 a windbreaking jacket mm -hmm. that I've used um, as an extra layer in very strong and windy conditions. Um, had a spare uh, inner, inner boots um, <clears throat> for my boots, put plastic bags around the socks and the inner boots and put my feet into the wet shoes. And four hours later, uh, we started walking again. So usually, I don't know, um, you, you don't have much chance of surviving, but it was just my lucky day. So it's, I mean, it took four hours for, from incident to, to actually being moving again. And that, that seems, that actually seems, like a long time on some, on, you know, in some regards, but it also seems quite quick in others. 
it sounds though that that you really you, you feel like the North Pole still the North Pole is in, in terms of some of your your expeditions that the North Pole is the one that is sort of the the hardest. I mean, I, that's such a ridiculous thing. Which what's harder, crossing the North Pole or the South Pole? Uh, but you're one of the few people that we can ask that. You know, you know, Chris, um, the the North Pole. Um, was um, with Borgi, you know, it was something that has never, um, it has never been done before. And it has taken um, so many years of, of knowledge and experience um, for Borgi and myself um, accumulated together uh, to, to be able um, to even think that we were capable of crossing uh, the polar ocean and it's just the navigation uh, the orient uh, the orientation the the movement of the ice the knowledge of the thickness of the ice where to put your tent where not to put your tent where to find water to drink as i mentioned earlier we're walking on ice that's that's frozen salt water um, people can't just go out there and do it Right. Um, they can be strong physically, but if you don't have 25 years of knowledge um, as an explorer and Borgi uh, having uh, done all, all his life as a polar explorer, um, it, it, would be, it would be difficult. The South Pole is, is, uh, is a continent and it's ice on top of, um, of, of of a landmass, it's a little bit like the glaciers on a on a mountain, and except the crevasses that you have to be careful of, um, uh, and 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 as you go up uh, the uh, through Queen Maudland uh, from sea level, uh, you might have one or two avalanches if there's heavy snowfall, uh, but once you're on the 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 glacier on the plateau. Um, there's not much um, that that can kill you. Um, there's there's still the unknown. There's still the sastrugi. It's extremely cold. You know, Antarctica is a much colder continent. Um, and it was the sheer uh, distance that I had to cover five thousand one hundred kilometers across Antarctica that that made it extremely difficult. For me, it was a race against um, time. It was a race to stay alive because I could only enter Antarctica um, once the ice gave me a chance to approach the Antarctic continent. And we couldn't even get to where we wanted to be. So I was 200 kilometers away from where we originally planned the drop off. So just to start the expedition, I had to ski over the sea ice onto the ice shelf 200 kilometers before I even got to Antarctica. And then you have to cross 5,100 kilometers right to the other side and try and get out before the winter, before the freeze starts again. You have to cross Dome Sea. Dome Sea is an accumulation of ice that goes 3,800 meters high in altitude. 
temperatures I've experienced of minus 60 to minus 70 degrees Celsius. It's extremely cold. And the moment you get pulled by a kite, and we're not speaking about uh, walking on a, on a road like O'Brady did, or I don't know what his name is, that, 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 that guy that said Colin, he was- Colin, Colin Brady, is it? Yeah, the cross Antarctica. We're not walking on, on we, you pioneering a new route navigation becomes as well extremely difficult in these whiteout conditions at altitudes above um, uh, uh, 3,000 meters. So Antarctica to me was definitely, as a solo explorer, one of my greatest expeditions. Hmm. But the North Pole with Borgi being not solo, um, was, I think, for both of us, the most difficult expedition that both of us has, have ever done. And it was not only a fight for our life every day, but it was the, the, the unknown. The fact that we are going in with a boat to go where no other boat has ever been. It's not a route up a mountain. It's, it's, it's not when you're tired, you can turn back. It's not that if the weather is not good, now you can pitch a tent. Everything is unknown. And because you're walking on a platform that's constantly moving and ice is breaking up and you can't find water or ice to melt for water to drink, it makes it's such an unknown element. <clears throat> and that's what makes the North Pole more challenging than the South Pole. Mm. On the South Pole, you pitch your tent and you wake up at the same spot. On the North Pole, you pitch your tent and you drift it back what you've walked during the day. Imagine for us to, to approach the pole, the last degree in complete darkness took us 11 days for 11 days, we tried to go to the pole and we drifted back. We tried to go to the pole and we drifted back. Imagine doing that for 11 days and each morning you wake up exactly where you started from the day before. How mentally must that play a role on, on your mind? Knowing that you're eating the food and you're on top of the world where nobody can rescue you. That is unknown. That is fear. That is confinement. Don't tell me staying at home is confinement. Don't tell me that, you know, now all of a sudden um, we've got to stay at home and we, we can still go to the supermarket and buy what we want and eat and, 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 and be with the loved ones and be with uh, family and friends that we can't find. No, we're not confined. We're in a controlled environment take confinement in an uncontrolled environment and that changes life. Mm. That is so good for perspective right now. Uh, I think it's also worth mentioning in, as you're describing both of the poles that you've just completed this expedition, the pole to pole expedition that started in Monaco, went all the way down the coast of Africa, across the Southern Ocean. Mike jumps off the boat, 
does a 56 day solo over Antarctica. The boat can't meet him for some mechanicals. He hitches a ride, gets back to the boat, then heads west on the planet into, into Indonesia, that, that whole zone. There's, his boat gets hooked up on a reef, almost loses it, tells me he's going to sink it, doesn't sink it, rescues it, refits it, goes up past China, all the way up through the Bering Sea. Well, just before that, went to K2 and didn't make it to the summit. <laughs> That's right. Just a quick stop is just sort of like a round of, you know, 18 holes. Just golf tries K2, then uh, heads north in his boat, uh, Pangaea, to, to with Borgi and crew, uh, straight up from from uh, Alaska. From where did you guys? No, from Nome, Alaska. Nome, Alaska. Straight, yeah. Gets uh, to 85 degrees north in a sailboat, which has never been done uh, previously, and then hops off and, and goes on to the adventure that we just heard about, which is close to 100 days of, of uh, being on the, in that tenuous position with Borgi, and then, uh, and then eventually gets his boat back home um, on the other side. And uh, that was a three-and-a-half-year uh, effort, uh, the pole-to-pole. The yeah, that was three and a half years, and um, you know what what made the the last bit of the expedition um, so difficult was that we, with Borgi, um, we had food for eighty five days, and um, when when you know that nobody can can come and help you, nobody can rescue you. Um, and you see your food become less and less and the distance that you have to cover becomes more and more because of the drift of the ice. Um, negative drift, meaning taking you back from where you, you come from, uh, were coming from or skiing from the day before. All of a sudden you realize that, you know, you slowly but surely counting the days until you have no food and then two or three days later you will die and that's so visual there's no shop that you can go to there's no other source of food that you can find it is you left from alaska with enough food that you thought you can cross the polar ocean and at the end of the day although we took 15% more food than what we thought it would take us, the conditions on the pole today has become, it's, it's becomes very difficult that you can't calculate what is going to happen, how long it will, uh, how long it will take you. If you take ice in 2006, when we did the first winter expedition from Russia, to the North Pole with Borgi. In 2006, we had two meter ice, two to two meters 50 on the North Pole. When we skied across in December last year, three, four months ago, we only had five to 10 centimeters of ice on the North Pole. Where's all the ice gone? 
if you have two and a half meter thick ice and the wind blows over the ice, the ice takes a very long time to start moving. If you have very thin ice, five centimeters or 10 centimeters thick, as soon as you have a little bit of wind on the thin ice, the ice starts moving very quickly. And the ice moves faster than what you can walk. So we didn't know that that extent of open water, that extent of very thin ice, since 2006 to 2019 has changed so much that um, you, can't, you can't calculate the time that you will spend on the ice anymore. Hmm. And that to me is even bigger, a bigger problem than the coronavirus. What's happening in our environment? If we lose the North Pole and we didn't see a lot of old ice, then the planet's going to start warming up. And then we, our lives and all of our lives are going to be threatened by, by the change in the climate more than any virus would ever threaten, uh, threaten us. So you really saw it. I mean, having been, being one of the only people who has spent that much time on the, on the North Pole and just within a decade... Chris, there was only two people out of eight billion people on the planet that was there. And we skied from Alaska to Spitsbergen. We saw the whole polar ocean. Mm. So those, those um, the, the thickness of the ice, those signs that we see today is, is a real sign that our, our climate is busy changing. And if we imagine we lose the ice on the North Pole during summer, and people predicted, scientists predicted it um, in 30 years time or 40 years time that we will have no more ice on the Arctic Ocean during summer. I think it can even be quicker. Mm. So imagine we all live in this, in, in, in this room all together, all the 8 billion people live in one room and you've got air conditioning units in this room and you've got windows and you've got doors in this room. When we do activity, we create heat. So the 8 billion people, we're moving around, we're creating heat. And the moment that the room heats up, we're going to open the windows and open the door and switch on the air conditioning unit to cool down this room that we're all living. But imagine you can't open a window or you can't open the door or you can't switch on the air conditioning unit because it's locked and there's no energy. What's going to happen in this room? It's going to heat up. Now the North Pole and the South Pole they are like the windows and the doors of our world that mm. cools us down, that keeps us at a temperature that we can live at. If we have no more uh, ice on the North Pole in 30, 40 years, we closing a window and a door permanently and our planet will not be able to cool down.
the South Pole will still exist. The South Pole will still cool down our planet, but not to an extent like the North and the South Pole does together. So that is a concern. But I think that today we've seen that we can lower the carbon emissions. Paris has never been so clean with the quality of the air. China, if you take the satellite photos that's taken from the pollution in China, it is unbelievable to see how this little shutdown has proven that we, we, we can give the earth a breather. We can make um, the planet that we only have one of a better place. Yeah, that's, that's a larger existential threat, right? Than, than even what we're facing right now. The, the discussion around climate change and what you're seeing, what you saw there, I think is, is one of the most firsthand. Uh, and you've said this to me many times, you know, I'm not a tree hugger, but I've seen it. I'm seeing it in person. Uh, and I think that that's, that's as, we're, as humanity is, is responding to this crisis, uh, you know, that one looms in the, in the background for sure. But, but, but it gives me hope as well. It gives me a lot of hope that we can do something and that the planet will exist and we as humans will exist on this planet for much longer. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. All these things are interconnected. The same way that we spoke about with another guest that, you know, a, a virus of this sort is actually sort of, it's not, it isn't climate change, but it's related to the same environmental degradation and uh, the disruption of ecosystem, global ecosystems. It comes from that same source. So climate change, viruses, it's all part of the same uh, disruption that is, is sort of, not sort of, that is human caused. So, um, I mean, the more information and the more, more first-hand account like yours that we get, I think, helps people understand that, that this is inextricably tied and it's, there's a connectedness to it that's um, really important and, and important to observe. But I'm curious too, like, I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've gone from north to south at this point. What people are still, they feel this. And I know that they don't understand isolation in the same way that you do. Um, I know that, well, nobody really does. There are very few people in the world that, that understand that. Um, but what are the takeaways from the things that you've done and that time in isolation that you can offer people right now? What can you give to people in this moment that you've learned? Corey, uh, I, I think that, you know, we, when you isolate yourself um, to, do, um, to do something that you dreamt of, mm -hmm. to be able uh, to, to, chase, to chase a goal and, and to make your dreams come true um, is, is much easier than being forced to stay at home. Yeah, absolutely, and, 100%. And, and, and what people don't understand, uh, and me included, is that the moment that people tell you uh, to stay at home, um, you feel like rebelling against it. Mm -hmm. You feel like um, it's, 
um, you're the only one being punished. But what we mustn't forget is that this is the whole world. And everybody is going through the same situation. And it's not only about me or you, it's about all of us together. Mm -hmm. And I think the moment that it becomes all of us, that's the moment that we have to accept what is happening. And if you can accept isolation, free your mind and isolate your body. It's, that's when you have freedom. But we all work towards freedom. We all work to earn money, to be more and more free. But the moment that freedom is given to you, mm -hmm. not a lot of people know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Because we part of a system that makes decisions for us, that channelizes us, that directs us. And very few of us do have the luxury of being able to know what to do with freedom. And the moment that you're confined to a space that you call home, your comfort zone, all of a sudden people realize that, wow, I've got the freedom today to do what I really wanted to do, but I can't go out there to do it. And that is when you respect, start respecting the time that you have when you're really out there. The time that you decide not to go out because it's raining. Now we've got a better idea of what to do with our freedom if we can be free. And, and the other day, my, my, I was yesterday, I spoke to my daughters and my daughters, they crossed the Pacific Ocean, they, they crossed the Indian Ocean on a sailboat but they never crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And they said, you know, this is the perfect time to get on a sailboat, confine ourselves in a sailboat, sail across the Atlantic, get back, get to New York, make a U-turn without going on land and sail back. So you're confined in a boat. You are doing something that you've never done before. You can go out there and make your dreams come true. Okay, you have to get a boat. Not all of us do have the opportunities to do it. But if we take opportunities and we set our goals, and the moment that you have a goal, that's when confinement, you can deal with it. That's when it becomes acceptable because you're building towards a brighter future. If you think that the worst or, or the, the, the future will be worse than what it will be. And the past was always better. That's the wrong, that's the wrong outlook, the outlook to have in life. You can't always think that the future will be worse than the past was better. The future that's awaiting us is going to be amazing. But now we have the time to prepare the future. And if you're well prepared, and everything opens up and you make your dreams come reality, then you've gained time. This is not time lost. 
see it as time gained while you stay at home and preparing your next dreams. I don't know if there's a better way to end it than that. No, I mean, <laughs> that, that's just like, you just put a beautiful bow on it, Mike, in, in, uh, in the way that you do. Thank you. That was, that was amazing and just great stories. I don't know any better storytellers on the planet than Mr. Mike Horn. So to have you uh, share all this with us today is a total privilege. Thanks for spending the time. Uh, and we'd love to have you back on, you know, we're going to keep doing this and uh, your inspiration, I think is, is something we'd, we'd love to get back on at, at a future time as well. And, um, no problem. Are you, are you, are you, don't you want to come to Greenland with me? We see the narwhals come in, the belugas, we go and climb all the mountains, uh, in, in the Switzerland on the west, east coast of Greenland. We ski new lines. It's in a month's time, it's the most amazing place to go. I want to go. Yes, yes. I've got when, do people. when do we leave? Yeah. When do we leave? Corey, there's some amazing climbs to be done there. Yeah, I, I've never been and I want to go. I'm dying to go to Greenland, dying to go. So. so the boat will sail with the boat into into the fjord or the, the Scoresbury Sound fjord. Mm -hmm. We step off the boat with the skis in front of us. We have the most amazing mountains. I'm in the most unclimbed. <laughs> it's it's stunning. Tell me when. That's where, that's where I'm heading to. I'll let you know. I'll let Chris know, and we can make some amazing. We can create some amazing content. When the narwhals come in, the belugas come in, you, you've got these beautiful lines to ski. The, these amazing pictures of, of unclimbed mountains to climb. I'm 100% in. Yeah, no convincing. No, I'll go. I, you don't even need to convince me. I'm sold. I'm on. So just, just, yeah, well, there's a space for you. Reserve, reserve. I'll take a space in a broom closet, man. I don't care. Just I'll sleep I'll on the floor in the kitchen. In the garage, but you have to be on time. Seven a.m. He'll leave. Yeah, he'll leave. He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> I don't give a shit. But Mike, thank you so much, man. Do. Yeah, thanks, brother. We'll be in touch. Thanks for listening to Rome from Home with myself and Corey Richards. If you like the show and you want to check it out over on romemedia.com, you can see both the video and the audio, plus the show notes where anything that was referenced in this episode, Google search, book, movie will be listed. And if you really like us and you want to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or any of the places that you listen to podcasts, we would appreciate it. And 